This is Our American Stories. When you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment. And we do that about people who are about to die, eulogies, and death's a part of life. And sometimes we got to go there. And today we have a contributor reading his article entitled, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. And the writing comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and a university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. As he sat thinking of what his wife's friend was going through, he thought of what his own mother went through when his father died. When he thought of his friend's kids, he remembered what it was like when he lost his dad. He wrote it down and sent it to the Boston Globe, and when they accepted it, he sent the check they gave him to his wife's best friend. When Reader's Digest published it, he sent her that money too. Here is Willie reading the story. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems, but once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash, mountains in whatever direction I looked, and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. 
I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form, on my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories.
we continue with Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all over this great country. And we've been spending some time in Austin, Texas, at a place called Community First Village, a 51-acre master-planned community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a loving community for men and women who've spent years, often decades, surviving on the streets of Austin. It's easy to appreciate the world-class architecture in this village, but it's the people who really make it transformative. Larry Crawford is the guy who fixes anything that breaks in the community, from air conditioners to trucks. And like many Americans whose work is so much more than a day job, Larry works all hours of the day, especially with what he calls his mobile homeless gig, where he goes out to meet folks wherever they are and fix their vehicles so they can keep living in them. Here's Larry on how all of that got started. I've always been a bit of a gearhead. I mean, I had hot rods when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. I built my first car that I legally drove on the street uh, when I had a driver's license, a handmade car. And I like the four-wheelers and the Jeeps and stuff and restored a few old vehicles and, you know, swapped a few motors and just loved working on cars and stuff. And then when I come to Austin and I started working at the village, I quickly came to believe that what we do here at the village is the gold standard for coming up with a way to uh, mitigate uh, people living on the streets. And even though I do believe completely that this is the gold standard, there's a lot of demographics, there's a lot of people that we are not reaching. So five years ago, I met this couple, they were on the side of a freeway, um, in South Austin, broke down in an old raggedy motorhome. And I just stopped and asked him if I could help. And, uh, you know, the lady, uh, she was kind of scared of me and she stayed kind of in the back of the motorhome. And the guy was an older fella. And um, he, uh, he's, like, he's like, man, I, the thing just won't start. He said, I think I'm out of gas. And so, and I'm like, well, let me look. I turned the key and it's sitting on empty. I'm like, well, I'm like, I got a gas can in the back of my truck. I said, there's a store about two miles up. I'll go get some gas. I'll come right back. So I, I put some gas in the guy's car and I had like a, a two gallon can and a five gallon can. And so I filled them both up. And, um, and it, of course the thing started right up and they were thrilled and relieved. And, and, uh, he said, Hey, let me pull right up here. He said, just follow me. He said, I, I want to, I want to meet you. You know, so we're on the side of a freeway, and there's a lot of traffic, and it was it was dicey just putting the gas in there. I was like, I hope I don't get squished by one of these trucks. And uh, so we go up, and he pulls into a little open area off the feeder road, and and we shook hands, and he thanked me, and and uh, and we parted ways. And we'll, but I gave him my phone number, uh, although he didn't have a phone, he still doesn't have a phone, and. Um, that's how I call it the mobile homeless gig, and uh, so that's how it started. And uh, and I've done probably about ninety cars in the last five years. I don't say cars, vehicles. Sometimes it's a school bus, sometimes it's a Honda little four door car, and sometimes it's a van, sometimes it's a an old motorhome. And uh, but I only fix things for people that live in their vehicles. So if your car breaks down, don't call me because uh, I'm busy. Um, 
And so I, I do all the parts and I do all the labor for free, so I don't charge anybody for anything. And the people that I've done stuff for have been musicians, they've been artists, they've been elderly, they've been young, they've been brilliant and smart, and uh, some of them are stupid as a rock. And I'm just like the whole, you know, spectrum of what people could be, and I never, I never ask them what got them there. I never judge them on whether, you know, their vehicle smells like marijuana or their vehicle smells like some sort of a cheap whiskey or wine or some other yucky stuff. Uh, I just fix their car and move on. And um, I had a, one pretty recent that that happened was. Um, I got a call from this lady, and she had a little small car, and uh, the old car, maybe 20, 25-year-old car. She was on the side of 35. She was northbound, uh, just coming out of downtown Austin. Car broke down on the side of the road. She had no money, very little gas, and the cops were behind her, and they were fixing to have her towed. And she contacted this church in South Austin. It's not a church I go to, but anyhow, so she called this church to ask if there was anybody could help and so they gave her my number she called me and she was crying and you know she's worried she's going to get a ticket because she didn't have any insurance and registration was expired and um and I, she told me where she's at and i'm like i'll be there in a few minutes and it's at the end of the day it was like five o'clock at night and i was already through working anyway so i'd drive over there and of course the cop was behind her and i pull in front of her car and and this time she's really crying hard because the cop had already called a tow truck. So I went back and uh, asked the cop if he had given me an opportunity to take care of it and he asked me who I was. And, uh, and he had heard of me, he didn't know me, but he had heard of me from some other cops or something. And uh, he said, I'll call off the tow truck and I'll give you an opportunity. And so I knew the immediate threat was gone. So I went over and started looking at the car and, and it didn't take me five minutes to figure out I didn't have the part nor the tools to complete the job. So I called a tow truck, a company here in Austin that I'd used several times before. And, and uh, they had a truck that was only like two exits away. And so they just came right away and they towed the car. He asked me where I wanted it. I just take it to O'Reilly's. It's an auto parts store, the next exit. So we went up there and, and uh, I bought the part. It cost me $9 for the part to fix this lady's car. And I, I didn't have all the tools I needed, but the guy in the auto parts store, he was real cool. He's like, just buy everything you need to fix the car. And when you're through fixing them, bring them all back in. I'll give you your money back. And he said, we kind of do this tool rental thing here. You just pay for it, bring it back, and I'll give you your money back. I'm like, okay, fine. So it literally cost me nine bucks. And, you know, in total, maybe a couple of hours. And, um, you know, that lady's level of stress was just off the charts because she thought her car was gonna get towed and she knew if she got it towed, she would lose it forever. And, you know, I asked myself if I were going to be homeless, if I had a choice between sleeping in my van or my car or sleeping in an alley or under a bridge, which would I prefer? Well, obviously you'd rather sleep in your car or in your van, because at least you have a door you can lock and keep some of your stuff from getting ripped off or rained on or whatever. And so, yeah, that's how that kind of started. And some weeks I'll do one or two, some weeks I'll do eight or nine. And uh, so that's kind of how that goes, or that got started.
And since Larry's been at this for a while and word has gotten around, others have been inspired to help however they can. The tow truck driver that showed up on that, that little car um, is a big old Hispanic fella. He uh, kind of looked like a, he was like a linebacker from a football team from like 20 years ago. He was an older guy. And uh, anyhow, he had heard about, you know, me fixing people's cars. And, and, uh, and he, uh, you know, when we first got there, he just went straight to work, hooking up winches and things to, you know, be able to pull the car up onto the back of the flatbed truck he had. So we get to the auto parts store and he's unloading. And then we finally got to talk because he really didn't talk much because he was trying to get us all off the side of the freeway. So we get there and, and I thanked him and I went to pay him. He's like, no, you don't have to pay me. And I'm like, oh, but no, I'm going to pay you. He said, no. He said, I've, I've been hearing about you. He said, I'm going to do this tow for free. And, uh, and I, you know, I thanked him and, and he, he gave me his, you know, company card and wrote his cell phone number on the back. And, and he said, well, my boss knows I'm towing this for free. He said, if you ever call, and I'm on shift, he said, I'll tow it for free as long as it's not too far and doesn't take too much diesel. And uh, so I was really grateful that, you know, that this complete stranger that I never met this said, hey, I'm going to give you a free tow. And so, like I said, I took care of that lady's entire stressful situation for like nine bucks. And, you know, nine bucks is not a whole lot of money to me. But to that lady, that nine dollars was everything. And you've been listening to Larry Crawford. And by the way, to learn more about Community First Village, go to www.mlf.org. That's MLF for Mobile Loaves and Fishes. That's MLF.org. And by the way, the consequence of his generosity, of course, was the imitative power of his story. People see the story, they see the person doing something beautiful, and they want to do it too. And this country is filled with random acts of generosity and kindness. If you've got a story like it or a person like it in your community, and I know you do, send them and their stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Larry Crawford's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and this next story comes to us from a regular contributor John Elfner who's taught US history for over 20 years at Homewood Flossmore High School in the south suburbs of Chicago here's John with a great history story I teach US history to high school students and on the first day of class just after they've arrived I tell them the story of something called the freedom train It's the very first thing my students hear me talk about, and it's such a great story, it comes with its own soundtrack. Speaking of trains, I think it'd be a good idea for the Rhythm Airs and Mr. Trotter to join me in a song about the most important choo-choo, the Freedom Train. This song by Bing Crosby was written to celebrate a very specific train that over 3.5 million Americans boarded between 1947 and 1949. It was called the Freedom Train. 
The Freedom Train was a museum on rails. It was an actual train. Each car contained original documents that represented American freedom, and the train traveled from city to city for over two years. It would pull into a station and settle on a sidetrack. The local townspeople would board the train to witness freedom documents. Original copies of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Emancipation Proclamation, along with many others, were featured. Dr. Stuart J. Little has written extensively about the Freedom Train, and I'm going to let him pick up the story. The Freedom Train was a social, cultural, political event immediately on the heels of the end of the Second World War. And it began as an idea for some staff people who worked for the Department of Justice. And they just so happened to be across the street from the National Archives. And they walked across the street one day, I think on their lunch hour. They got together with the Attorney General's office, with the National Archives people and said, let's see what we can do to put something together. So by the early 1947, they created this organization called the American Heritage Foundation. And they designed a very aggressive schedule to bring this train to all parts of the country. They started in September of 1947, went around the country for 413 days, went to 322 cities. And by their count, they had over 3 million people that visited the train every time it stopped. And that averaged out to, I think, about 9,000 people a day. The Freedom Train had a mission to bolster American identity. Now remember, we were barely out of World War II, and the nation had been so unified with a purpose that was literally life and death during that war. And now the war was over. We were entering our next great conflict, the Cold War, and the organizers of the Freedom Train recognized the need to encourage a very specific idea of what it means to be an American outside of wartime. And their organizing principle was freedom. Here again is Dr. Little. We've defeated the Nazis and the Japanese. There's a great consensus in America for what we mean, and we can pull these documents together and reflect that, that we're on the the right path. We've defeated everybody. We're literally at the rise of American power after World War II. And so there's this great sense of accomplishment and moving forward. Townspeople excitedly rushed in droves to see the Freedom Train. But you don't have to take my word for it. I met two women who boarded the Freedom Train in 1947. I would have been 12 or 13. That's Clarice Fleet, and she boarded the train in Minot, North Dakota. I was in grade school at that time. And that's Carol Jones. She got on the train in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1948. And it was announced all over the media. From coast to coast, the Freedom Train thrilled millions of Americans with its message of liberty. Among the documents of greatest interest, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the Freedom Train, bearing these guarantees of liberty, symbolize the forwards of America. The arrival of the Freedom Train, especially in small towns like Minot, North Dakota and Green Bay, Wisconsin, thrilled the people from these towns. You can hear it in Carol Jones's voice as she talks about learning the Freedom Train was coming. We were very excited to know that the Freedom Train was coming to Green Bay. Our school was going to march in in line and get dressed up, and we were going to go see the Freedom Train. We were thoroughly excited that this train was coming to Green Bay. It was fascinating listening to these two women tell the story of their visits to the Freedom Train. To this day, Carol and Clarice have never met or spoken to each other. 
Both women's recollections of their visit was nearly identical. Welcome to the Freedom Train. We got our friends together and we all marched over. The whole town turned out just like they did for the state fair. We gathered at school, St. Patrick's grade school. No pushing. So the nuns all had their habits on and everything and they escorted us in line. Step this way. The line that went forever. And the train itself was in red, white, and blue. It was a beautiful day. I mean, it was just lovely. And we had we walked through, and it was, keep going, keep going. Faster, <laughs> we couldn't daddle. And on each side, and then you walked down, down the middle of the aisle of the train. They divided us up because the train was so long. Stay with your group. And then on each side, they had the documents that they were the real documents. The Constitution is on your left. It was so exciting to see the Declaration of Independence. They showed documents under, under glass. glass. Don't touch the glass. You couldn't touch them, but you could look at them. And it went on all day. Open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. This beautiful train. Very, very beautiful. As passengers boarded the train, they were handed something called the Freedom Pledge. It was created by the American Heritage Organization, and by reading it, you can tell what they meant by freedom. I will vote at all elections. I will serve on a jury when asked. I will respect and obey the laws. I will pay my taxes understandingly, if not cheerfully. I will work for peace. Getting on the train and accepting the card with the Freedom Pledge was a version of entering into a contract with the designers of the Freedom Train, committing to their notion of what it means to be an American. Every person who boarded the train was even asked to sign a scroll, which was delivered to the National Archives when the train concluded its journey in 1949. The contract sent this message, our country provided freedom, and the passenger's obligation in the contract was to fulfill this pledge. And this pledge succeeded in setting a tone for the interior of the train. Newspapers reported it this way. Inside, one has the feeling he is in church. The only light is the soft fluorescent glow reflected from the lighted documents. Parents shush their children and little schoolboys take off their caps without being told. People speak in low guarded tones used by tourists in ancient cathedrals. The Freedom Train had a mission to define through documents what it means to be an American and to get millions of people to sign on to that definition. Touring these documents from city to city, people like Clarice and Carol understood what the American Heritage Foundation had hoped that they would. Our nation is successful because of a past focused on freedom, designed by our noble ancestors who through their work created a strong and united nation. And that unity and strength of principle allowed us to defeat tyranny in World War II. The country was unified and the Freedom Train emphasized that unity. Everybody was so appreciative to be able to see those things because to have it come to our, our little hometown meant so much to everybody at that time. I don't know anybody in town that didn't go down there. All we knew is that something exciting was coming to town and that we were going to see the Freedom Train, the real Freedom Train, with real things that were all about Washington and Lincoln. We would have to see for real just the fact that you were looking at the actual documents that formulated our country. Everybody was, God bless America, and there was no controversy, and we were coming out of the war, and there was a lot of patriotism going on. We had yet to face what was happening as far as integration goes. That may have been true in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but as the train scheduled stops in the South, city officials in Birmingham, Alabama, 
announced that in their city, the Freedom Train would be segregated. And if I didn't have my students' attention up until this point, I have their attention now. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story, the Freedom Train. And by the way, what an idea to take a Freedom Pledge. I don't know if you've ever been to a a swearing-in ceremony for immigrants in this country who come here, but it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever heard. And I sometimes wonder if we all shouldn't have to do that as a pathway to voting and everything else. And by the way, look that pledge up. Just go up on uh, Google and, and type in Citizen Pledge. Maybe I'll read it at the end of the rest of this story. When we come back to Freedom Train, we're with John Elfner, a history teacher at Homewood Flossmore High School in the south suburbs of Chicago. More on this story here on Our American Stories. Return to our American stories and the story of the Freedom Train. Let's return to John Elfner for the rest of this story. The Freedom Train was a glorious success, hosting 9,000 visitors a day, traveling over 30,000 miles in two years, and having over 3 million witnesses to our founding documents. But when the train headed for Birmingham in 1947, the town announced it would segregate African American and white visitors to the train. How can something called the Freedom Train end up with such obvious contradictions to the basic notions of freedom? It's important to remember that the year the Freedom Train began in 1947, it was still seven years before the landmark Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, which declared segregation by race inherently unequal. But the Freedom Train organizers were ready for this. Here again is historian Stuart J. Little. The American Heritage Foundation, they had a stated written policy that they would not allow segregated viewing of these documents when the train went through the South. A portion of the Freedom Pledge even acknowledged this. In thought, expression, and action, I will avoid any group prejudice based on class, race, or religion. Despite the efforts of the Freedom Train organizers, many Southern cities still tried to schedule segregated viewings of the train. At this point in the story, we meet a familiar opponent of civil rights who became much more prominent after the 1963 Birmingham movement. His name is Bull Connor, and he held the position of the Commissioner of Public Safety and was the head of the police in Birmingham, Alabama. Remember the images of the German shepherds attacking African-American teens? Or the Birmingham Fire Department using fire hoses to break up protesters? They were acting on the orders of Bull Connor. But the Freedom Train was visiting Birmingham 16 years before that famous march. Connor's views on segregation in the Freedom Train won't surprise you. He sent a message to the organizers of the Freedom Train saying this. Our segregation law is for the equal protection of the white and black races of the city and for the prevention of disorder in the city. We will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks to enter the Freedom Train by alternatively allowing whites and blacks in each car of the train. Can you hear how Connor is using the language of the separate but equal ruling of the Supreme Court? 
we will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks. What he meant was, African Americans can board the train at separate times than whites would be boarding the train. The attempts to segregate the Freedom Train at stops like Birmingham, Alabama didn't go unnoticed by civil rights advocates. Langston Hughes, perhaps the most celebrated poet of the Harlem Renaissance, wrote a poem called The Freedom Train, and it was recorded by arguably the most famous and most political African-American figure in the 1940s, Paul Robeson. Checking on the Freedom Train. I read in the papers about the Freedom Train. I heard on the radio about the Freedom Train. Atlanta, way across Jordan. Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, way down in Dixie, the only trains I see got Jim Crow coaches set aside for me. I hope there's no Jim Crow. Researching this story, I found a ripped piece of paper in the Library of Congress's papers belonging to Rosa Parks. It was a scrap of typing paper that had faded to a parchment yellow. It was torn, and only fragments of sentences were visible. The Library of Congress had cataloged it as Rosa Parks writing about the Freedom Train, but it wasn't that. It was Langston Hughes's poem. Mrs. Parks had heard it and typed it out for herself. But there's more. Mrs. Parks was aware that other cities like Birmingham had tried to segregate the lines for the Freedom Train. She decided that she would, in the words of Langston Hughes, check up on the Freedom Train when it arrived in Montgomery. Historian Dr. Jean Theo Harris is the author of a recent award-winning biography of Mrs. Parks called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. She picks up the story. The Freedom Train is supposed to be integrated and they're galled that the committee in Montgomery, it's an all-white committee, and she writes up a report from the Montgomery NAACP basically calling attention to this. And it's published in the Memphis World, which is a black newspaper. Parks, who was at that time already working for the NAACP, saw the Freedom Train as an opportunity to advocate for civil rights. In December of 1947, uh, she ultimately takes a group of black young people to see the Freedom Train. And it's, it's dangerous. It's her first experience with kind of hate calls. The popular image of Rosa Parks is that of a seamstress who didn't want to give up her seat on the bus because she was simply tired. But the story of Rosa Parks is much more complex and layered and she may have been directly inspired by the Langston Hughes poem. Listen to these lines. The Birmingham stations marked colored and white. White folks left the colored right. They even got a segregated lane. Is that the way to get aboard the freedom train? I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check up on this freedom train. Rosa Parks was checking up on the freedom train, just as Langston Hughes said you should. The train she boarded was not technically segregated, but it wasn't clear when she arrived that the community in Montgomery would allow her to integrate the train, or even the line for the train. When Rosa Parks checked up on the Freedom Train, it was still eight years before she would become a national figure when she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. So how did they do? Was the movement surrounding the Freedom Train a success? I'll let you decide. Here's what happened. When word reached organizers of the Freedom Train that southern cities were considering segregating the train, they sent advanced men to all the cities to check up on any efforts to segregate the lines to the Freedom Train. Any cities that had such plans were told the Freedom Train would cancel its visits. Only Birmingham and Memphis, Tennessee continued to insist on segregated lines, and in those cities, the Freedom Train stops were canceled. The decision to stand up to the city organizers in Birmingham and Memphis was cheered nationally. The New York Times made the cancellation of the Birmingham stop a front page story on Christmas Day of 1947. 
After the cancellations in Birmingham and Memphis, Walter White, the leader of the NAACP, publicly said this, for one of the very first times in history, the rest of the country had called the bluff of the reactionary South. I began this story by saying that on the first day of my history class, I tell my students the story of the Freedom Train. Why this story? I'm going to let Dr. Kevin Boyle, Northwestern University history professor and author of my favorite history book, Arc of Justice, help answer that question. Most Americans know the story of the Civil Rights Movement. Or maybe a better way of putting it is they know a story of the Civil Rights Movement. Ask them when the Civil Rights Movement began and they'll tell you it started on a Thursday night, a little after 5 p.m. on December 1st, 1955, when a woman, a 42-year-old woman, they think was elderly, refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. From that single act of defiance by Rosa Parks, they'll say, emerged a movement that swept across the South of the 1950s and 1960s, ran through the hallways of Little Rock Central High School in 1957. It sat down at the lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960, rode the buses out of Anniston, Alabama in 1961. It came onto the campus of the University of Mississippi in 1962. It filled the streets of Birmingham with children in the spring of 1963. It dared to go into the Mississippi Delta in the summer of 64. It marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside of Selma, Alabama in 1965, and it died on a motel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee in April of 1968. That's the story of civil rights as most Americans understand it. So what happens when you look at the African-American struggle that doesn't fit into that story, that doesn't fit between 1955 and 1965, when it doesn't fit into that triumphant trajectory, what happens to civil rights then? What happens is a reconsideration of the story of the civil rights movement, a story we thought we knew. And when you widen the civil rights movement beyond the years of the traditional story, my students realize that Rosa Parks and scores of others like her were fighting for civil rights long before the Montgomery bus boycott. And when they realize that a story they thought they knew is more complex and requires more exploration, it forces them to dig more deeply into all eras of history. It also gives them a chance to consider what artifacts from each era could be used to represent what it means to be an American. There was a second freedom train that traveled through our country to celebrate America's bicentennial in 1976. It featured many of the same documents from the original freedom train, but it also included dozens of documents that didn't exist at the time of the first freedom train, like a moon rock gathered by astronauts during the Apollo mission, John F. Kennedy's rocking chair from the White House, Hank Aaron's baseball cap, and dozens of other more recent artifacts. Seeing the difference between the two trains makes me wonder what would a freedom train have looked like in 1830, 1865, 1920, or today? In the year 2026, our country will be celebrating the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I can't think of a better way to celebrate our Sester Centennial than for us to get on board a third freedom train. And what stories, speeches, people, portraits, and songs would you want to see on that freedom train to represent what it means to be an American? I hope somebody plans a freedom train, and if they do, let's get on board together. I guarantee you the lines will be long, but there'll be plenty of room for all of us on the 21st Century Freedom Train. All aboard!
And you've been listening to John Elfner and the story of the Freedom Train and that second installment, particularly compelling, telling the story of segregation in America and giving the larger picture. We did a terrific piece on Rosa Parks and her life story, and it's clear that that was not the beginning of her trial, that for a long time before, Rosa Parks had been on the move, trying to change things in the South, and heck, there was a heck of a lot of segregation in the North, too. I'm a Jersey boy uh, by, by birth, and my goodness, almost all the neighborhoods were filled with white folks, and when black folks moved in, white folks left. There wasn't a law forcing them to, but they did it anyway. And we cover all the stories here on Our American Stories, the good ones, the bad ones, and everything in between. The Freedom Train, here's hoping we get one for 2026. I'd love to see what's on it. That story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. This next story, well, it's a story about a guy who got in a fight with his own government. Let's hear the story. Imagine being sent to federal prison for 18 months and being fined $130,000 for digging a hole on your own property. That's exactly what happened to 78-year-old Navy veteran Joe Robertson outside the small town of Basin, Montana. Between 2013 and 2014, Joe dug a series of small ponds to protect his nearby home from the threat of forest fires. Helicopters and fire trucks could use the ponds to fill up on water in the fire-prone forest. Joe and his wife Carrie even owned their own fire truck and small business that helped local firefighters. He had permission from the state of Montana through permits he had purchased to build the ponds. But the Department of Justice, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Army Corps of Engineers saw things a little differently. The EPA then trespassed onto his property and drained the ponds. Here's Joe Robertson. We seen a SUV parked outside our lock gate. So Carrie, we called dispatch, tried to find out who, who it was. But Carrie looked inside the SUV and she seen this, what was it, Marston or Siler? That's a Siler had a two EPA special agents. So that was one of the vehicles. So we figured, well, they're walking down the canyon, documenting the huge flow of water that isn't there, but they'd like to say it is, enough water to carry suspended solids for a mile down the Cataract Creek, and then about a, 120 miles down to Jefferson River, where is the only navigable waters but they have control over that, evidently. They don't want dredge materials in that. Carrie went down, she drove around with her four-wheeler and said, Joe's on his way down, but what I thought I'd do, I'd just sit there and wait by that SUV. 
They had brought two out, parked one to the bottom of the, a mile away from our ponds, and we caught them up there. What they were doing, they drained our pond. They, they trespassed behind the lock gate with signs all over saying that, you know, private property, keep out. And so here they, after Carrie said, I was on my way down, they took off, jumped in that other SUV and drove up 50 miles an hour on a dirt road. And there I was sitting at the gate waiting for them. And their mouth dropped open. It looked like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> they knew they were caught. I told them to t get their little fat butt out, close the gate behind them, which they did. They left. According to the EPA, Robertson had violated the Clean Water Act. A foot-wide and foot-deep creek ran past the ponds, which the EPA claimed was contaminated with dirt from Joe's excavation. Joe argued that dirt never entered the tiny creek and wouldn't reach a navigable body of water, even if it had. Two different environmental studies found that it was impossible for the ponds to have a significant effect on the physical, chemical, and biological integrity of the Jefferson River, some 60 miles away. Following a four-day-long federal trial, a Montana jury found Joseph Robertson guilty on two counts of unauthorized discharge of pollutants into waters of the United States and one count of injury or depredation of United States property. A witness describes what happened at the sentencing hearing. The judge gave him 18 months incarceration on count one, 18 months incarceration on count two, and 18 months incarceration on count three. And those sentences are to serve concurrently. Then there will be supervised probation. Count one will be one year. Count two will be three years. And count three will be one year. The judge also stated that a lifetime ban on firearms. He also had a lifetime ban on being around anyone that was with firearms. They also took his service dog away from him. Robertson was ordered to pay $129,933 in restitution that would come out of his social security checks. And after spending 18 months in federal prison, the disabled veteran was sent to a halfway house per court orders. When he eventually returned to his property, he had to stay in a camper down by the ponds because he wasn't allowed to stay in his own house with his wife because she owned firearms. Joe appealed his conviction to the Ninth Circuit Court, but the conviction was upheld. He then asked the Supreme Court to overturn his conviction because the Clean Water Act's failure to adequately define navigable waters is unconstitutional. No reasonable person would think that a narrow ditch you could step over with a normal stride is a federally protected commercial waterway. Sadly, Joe Robertson passed away unexpectedly in March of 2019 at the age of 80. The following month, the Supreme Court quietly granted Joe's petition, vacated the Ninth Circuit's ruling, and ordered them to confirm whether Joe's estate can still contest the fine. On July 10th of 2019, the Ninth Circuit vacated the conviction and fine, plus returned $1,250 in restitution, which Joe had already paid to his wife Carrie. This is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Jesse. And always, when the government is a bully, um, well, we don't like it. And we need government, and we need to pay our taxes for the things governments do. 
But periodically, we do tell these stories of when government's on the wrong side. And it has a lot of power. And sometimes people are afraid to fight. And then if they do fight, boy, the government throws the book at them. By the way, we all know what that feels like because we have accountants and we file taxes. And sometimes we'll say to our accountant, do I, do I really need to pay that? And he'll say, no, you don't. But you don't want the IRS auditing you. Or you don't want the IRS, you know, crawling up you and all the stuff you got. Um, and so, you know, we just do it and we acquiesce. And across this country, it happens in all different fields and lines of work, from banking to the environment to so many things. We want clean water and we want a good banking system. So we need these federal institutions. But when they go too far, um, there are stories to tell. Joe Robertson's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories. Wild Bill Hickok, well, his name conjures up an image of an out-of-control gunslinger. He drank, he brawled, he loved the cards and the ladies, and treated them both with respect. And on this day in 1876, Wild Bill Hickok died. And all of our This Day in Histories, by the way, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Here to tell the story of Wild Bill Hickok is Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. McGrath is a U.S. Marine, a former history professor at UCLA, and has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he's a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath. Well, Bill Hickok was a gunfighter and lawman of legendary proportions in the Old West, who also served as a scout for the U.S. Army during the Civil War and later during the Indian Wars. Nearly everything he did in his adult life commanded attention. Even the hand of cards he was holding when shot to death in a Deadwood saloon. In the 1870s, no Western figure was better known. He's the subject of hundreds of articles and books. A half dozen movies have been made about his life, most notably The Plainsman, starring Gary Cooper, and recently Wild Bill, starring Jeff Bridges. There was also a television series, The Adventures of Wild Bill Hickok, which ran for eight seasons and starred Guy Madison. Wild Bill Hickok is born James Butler Hickok in 1837 in Homer, Illinois, a small town 80 miles west of Chicago. The town later changes its name to Troy Grove. James's God-fearing, Bible-reading Christian parents are abolitionists who risk their lives by turning their home into a station for slaves along the Underground Railroad. It is during this time that the lean and wiry young man gets his first taste of hostile gunfire when he and his father are chased by law officers who suspect them of carrying more than just hay in their wagon. The danger of freeing slaves makes a lasting impression on young James, giving him a fearlessness that begins to define him as a man. 
James helps the family, which also includes three older brothers and two younger sisters, more by his hunting than by his laboring on the farm. From a young age, James is fond of guns and through natural talent and regular practice becomes a crack shot. He also develops the ability to shoot a handgun equally well with either hand. James is a voracious reader and consumes everything he can about America's fiercely independent frontier heroes, especially Daniel Boone and Kit Carson. James Butler Hickok heads west himself to Kansas territory in 1856. Kansas is a battleground between settlers from Illinois and other northern states who want to prohibit slavery there and southerners, mostly from Missouri and Arkansas, who want to establish slavery in the new territory. Hickok, who continues his abolitionist ways, joins Jim Lane's Free State Army to battle with the Free Staters called the Border Ruffians, who have crossed into Kansas from Missouri to attack anti-slavery settlers. Kansas becomes Bleeding Kansas, a prelude to the Civil War. In 1858, Hickok is elected constable of the town of Monticello in the northeastern corner of Kansas. Hickok is now 21 years old and is described as six foot one and 180 pounds with auburn hair and blue-gray eyes. For his size, he has small, almost delicate hands. He has great dexterity and can draw a handgun and manipulate its hammer and trigger with precision and quickness that astonish witnesses. He serves as constable for a year and then goes to work driving freight wagons and stagecoaches for the famous firm of Russell's, Majors, and Waddell, the founders of the Pony Express. While driving a freight wagon, Hickok finds his path blocked by a bear and her cubs. Hickok climbs off the wagon to see if he can frighten the bear off the trail. She has different ideas and charges him. He fires a shot that hits her in the head but doesn't stop her. She flattens Hickok and begins mauling him. In the life or death struggle, Hickok saves himself by repeatedly stabbing the bear with his bowie knife. Hickok is left badly injured. Russell's Majors and Waddell assign Hickok to the company's Rock Creek Station on the Oregon Trail in Nebraska to recuperate. In July 1861, 24-year-old Hickok is at the Rock Creek Station, a tiny stop on the Pony Express, when David McCandless comes to the station to collect a debt from the company. Here's Old West historian Andrew Nelson. The Pony Express is the fastest means of communication in the Old West, a relay set up between different riders to get letters from one of these outposts to the other. So what Towns ends up doing are setting up relay stations along the way. And it's at one of those relay stations that Wild Bill Hickok, who at this point is not Wild Bill, but Duck Bill, has his first brush with violence and fame. Horse got my money yet, Duck Bill? McCandless calls on the station manager, Horace Wellman, to come out with the money. McCandless, who nicknames Hickok Duck Bill, says if Hickok is supporting Wellman, he will come inside and drag them both out. Here's Old West historians, Paul Hutton and Marshall Trimble. The station was owned by a tough local character who had Southern sympathies by the name of Dave McCandless, and the Pony Express Company hadn't been paying their rent. 
Candlest was always coming around and harassing the people at the station. So there was animosity between David McCantless and Wild Bill Hickok, and McCantless was a bully. Hickok's distaste for bullies began with his participation in the Underground Railroad and continues with a chance encounter in 1857 with an 11-year-old boy named Bill Cody, who history will remember as Buffalo Bill. Cody first meets Hickok on a driving trip to Salt Lake City when Cody is an extra hand for Russell, Majors, and Waddell, and Hickok is a teamster. During the trip, one of the other teamsters berates and bullies the young Cody until the boy retaliates by throwing a pot of hot coffee into the teamster's face. The teamster reacts instantly. Cody describes what happens next in his autobiography. He sprang for me with the ferocity of a tiger and would undoubtedly have torn me to pieces had it not been for the timely interference of my newfound friend, Wild Bill, who knocked the man down. As soon as he recovered himself, he demanded of Wild Bill what business it was of his that he should put in his oar. It's my business to protect that boy or anybody else from being unmercifully abused, kicked, and cuffed, and I'll whip any man who tries it on, said Wild Bill. And if you ever again lay a hand on that boy, little Billy there, I'll give you such a pounding that you won't get over it for a month of Sundays. From that time forward, Wild Bill was my protector and intimate friend, and the friendship thus begun continued until his death. Here's criminal justice professor Arnett Gaston. Hickok's sense of justice, greatly influenced by his parents, caused him to get into situations where he should always stand up for right. He was a defender of the downtrodden. He was a defender of those who couldn't defend himself. And all this added to his aura. Originally from the mountains of North Carolina, McCandless is large and powerful. And some weeks earlier, had easily thrown Hickok to the ground in what was described as a friendly wrestling match. Hickok doesn't give McCandless a chance to do so again. As McCandless steps through the station's doorway, Hickok fires a rifle. A bullet pierces McCandless's heart, and he is blown backwards, falling to the ground dead. Two members of the McCandless gang, they now run to the station. Horace Wellman shoots Woods, and Woods staggers back and falls to the ground. Wellman's wife runs outside and finishes off Woods by hacking him with a hoe. Hickok shoots Gordon, but he somehow runs to a nearby creek. Hickok and several station employees track him down and shoot him to death with a shotgun. Six years later, a fanciful article appears in Harper's Magazine describing how Hickok single-handedly fought and defeated David McCandless and his ten-man gang of border ruffians. He becomes a national hero overnight. Here's Old West historian Marcus Huff. Harper's Weekly was essentially the, uh, the internet of the West. I mean, everyone read it, it was everywhere, and it was the news. To not only have a story about yourself in there, but illustrations that made you look much more dramatic than you really were. It was fantastic for Hickok, uh, professionally. 
And when we come back, we continue with the story of Wild Bill Hickok here on Our American Stories. continue here on our American stories with the story of Wild Bill Hickok. And on this day in history in 1876, Wild Bill died. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now, let's return to the story. Hickok leaves the Rock Creek Station two weeks after the shooting and travels to Fort Leavenworth to continue the family tradition of fighting against slavery and volunteers as a scout in the Union Army. It's at this time that Hickok develops his signature cavalry-style reverse draw, or twist draw, that will make him famous. Hickok next leads a Union wagon train from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas to Sedalia, Missouri. Confederate guerrillas attack the wagon train and Hickok barely escapes being captured. It's about this time he earns his nickname Wild Bill. Legend says he stops a bartender from being lynched after a saloon brawl in Independence, Missouri. A woman in the crowd applauds his action and yells, Good for you, Wild Bill! Here's Old West historian, Chris Entz. Bill Hickok was so pretty, it hurts. He was a very compassionate man. He was a decent man. His eyes would reflect that compassion. But if you ever challenged him, he could stare down a rattlesnake. Hickok carries dispatches through every fire for the Union forces during the Battle of Pea Ridge in Arkansas in 1862. The Union victory there ensures Missouri will remain in the Union. In April 1865, after four years with over 620,000 killed and nearly a million more wounded, captured, or missing, Hickok tries his luck as a gambler. In Springfield, Missouri, Hickok finds himself losing heavily in a poker game to Davis Tutt a former Confederate soldier turned professional gambler who's commonly known as Dave. Hickok gives Tut a valuable watch as collateral for his gambling debts. Here's Andrew Nelson. He warns Tut he does not want to see him walking around with that watch. So what does Tut do the next day? He walks around with the watch. What happens next has been the basis for countless legends about Old West gunfights. Tut appears on one side of Springfield's town square, Hickok on the other. What follows will later be made iconic by countless dime novels, radio and television dramas, such as Gunsmoke, and Western films such as High Noon. At a distance of about 75 yards, Hickok stops and calls out, Dave, here I am. They draw their guns and fire simultaneously. Hickok's round drills Tut in the heart. Tut calls out, Boys, I'm killed! and drops to the ground, dead. 
When newspapers publish reports of the shootout, it's the first time the name Wild Bill is used in print. Hickok's legend as a gunfighter skyrockets. After a coroner's jury declares that Dave Tutt had died at the hands of James Butler Hickok, Wild Bill is arrested on a charge of manslaughter. He posts bail and pleads not guilty at an initial court hearing. In the trial, Hickok's attorney argues self-defense. The prosecutor argues Hickok could have avoided the fight. The jury is out only 10 minutes and returns a verdict of not guilty. In 1866, Hickok is summoned to Fort Riley, Kansas by a Civil War friend, Captain R.B. Owen, who recommends Hickok for an appointment as a U.S. Deputy Marshal. Hickok becomes a Deputy Marshal and spends a year hunting horse thieves, counterfeiters, deserters, and other such miscreants. He also does some duty as an Army scout. It's while Hickok is at Fort Riley that he reconnects with William Cody, soon to be known as Buffalo Bill. Cody is serving as a government detective and army scout. On January 1st, 1867, Hickok begins scouting the frontier for one of the finest cavalry commanders of the Civil War, the boy general of the Michigan Volunteers, George Custer. Custer is now a lieutenant colonel in the regulars and commander of the famous 7th Cavalry. Custer calls Hickok his best scout and says he is the consummate plainsman. Custer's wife, the fetching Libby Custer, later said of Hickok, physically he was a delight to look upon, tall, lithe, and free in every motion. He rode and walked as if every muscle was perfection, and the careless swing of his body as he moved seemed perfectly in keeping with the man, the country, and the time in which he lived. Hickok can ride, trail, and track. And he's not only a crack shot, but also extraordinary with handguns. He practices with his guns whenever possible. And he disassembles and cleans them daily. He can hit several objects thrown in the air at the same time, firing with a gun in each hand. But it's one thing to shoot at targets. It's another thing to shoot at a man who's trying to kill you. In the face of fire, Hickok is not only one of the fastest, but one of the most deadly accurate shootists who have ever lived. In July 1867 appears the first dime novel about Hickok, Wild Bill the Indian Slayer. There's some truth in this because as a scout he fights and kills Indians and will continue to do so through 1868 and well into 1869. He has several close calls. In one fight, a Cheyenne warrior drives a lance into Hickok's thigh. But fame often has a lot of sharp edges and has to be handled carefully. There's always the threat of some lowlife trying to earn his spurs. In August 1869, Hickok is elected sheriff of Ellis County, Kansas. The county's largest town is Hayes City, a wild and woolly railroad stop full of buffalo hunters and teamsters and soldiers from nearby Fort Hayes. One writer referred to it as the Sodom of the Plains. Here again is Marcus Huff and historian David Eisenbach. Hayes City was uh, a hotbed of youthful indiscretion. It was a cattle town, a railhead. Uh, you had a lot of guys coming there to spend their money. It was fairly lawless until uh, uh, Hickok came around. 
once you acquire this, this international fame, which he did, of being the quickest shot you know, in the West, you're gonna get some jerk who wants to make a name for himself by taking you down. He is sheriff only a few days when he confronts Hellraiser Bill Mulvey, who's drunk, waving his gun about and challenging others to fight. Hickok shoots him to death. A month later, Hickok puts two bullets into the head of Sam Strawn under similar circumstances. Hickok's quick-to-shoot policy loses him a re-election bid in November 1869. Hickok remains in Hayes City, again trying his luck as a gambler. He's drinking in one of the saloons when two troopers of Custer's 7th Cavalry suddenly accost the legendary gunslinger. In the ensuing struggle, one of the troopers presses a gun to Hickok's ear and pulls the trigger. But the Remington 44 fails to fire. Hickok's Colt Navy 38 does fire, and the soldier is mortally wounded. Hickok wounds the second soldier with a shot to the knee. Hickok then springs to his feet and smashes through a window and into the night, never again to appear in Hayes City. And when we come back, more of the story of Wild Bill Hickok, who died on this day in history in 1876. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org. If you love these frontier stories, if you love these Western stories, we've got a bunch on our website. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Almost everything we've ever done is up there, and you can take a listen to it, you can download it. And by the way, we're also available on Amazon and Alexa and on iTunes as well. When we come back, more of the story of Wild Bill Hickok. continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Wild Bill Hickok. And Roger McGrath, as always, does such a great job on all of these pieces surrounding the frontier and the American West. Let's return to McGrath. In April 1871, Hickok becomes city marshal of Abilene, Kansas. Abilene is the first of famous Kansas cattle towns. Here's Paul Hutton and Andrew Nelson. Abilene had a reputation as being the roughest of all the cattle towns. It was end of trail for the herds coming north from Texas. Everyone's fueled on alcohol, of course, and somebody has to keep the peace. And that's Wild Bill Hickok. So this is an interesting moment in American history where a burgeoning society recognizes that it needs to remove the unsavory elements. But how do you do that? Well, you need to find someone who has one foot in both worlds, who can travel in both circles. Most of the cowboys who drive the herds from Texas to the Abilene Railhead are Confederate veterans or the sons of Confederate veterans. After months on the trail, and with a payoff in their pockets, they intend to have fun. Union veteran Hickok is at odds with them. It's a highly volatile situation with great potential for violence. 
Confederate veteran and Texan, Phil Coe is a giant of a man for his era, six foot four and 225 pounds. He has problems with Hickok from the day he arrives in Abilene, mostly over the way he, Coe, operates his saloon, the Bull's Head Tavern. Coe had upset the town with his saloon advertisement painted on the side of the building, a drawing of a bull with a massive erect phallus. Wild Bill painted over it, and Coe swore revenge. Problems further escalate when Hickok and Coe begin to court the same woman. On an October night in 1871, Coe and several of his Texas friends are drinking in the Alamo Saloon. Their revelry spills into the street, and Coe draws his gun and fires into the air. Sound of the gunfire brings Hickok on the run and he demands to know who fired the shot. Coe says he fired at a stray dog who tried to bite him. Hickok demands Coe's gun. Coe either hesitates to comply or refuses, depending on the witness. And Hickok immediately draws both pistols and fires. Coe is hit in the stomach and collapses. A second later, Hickok catches movement out of the corner of his eye and spins and fires twice more. The bullets tear into Mike Williams, Hickok's own deputy, who is rushing to Hickok's aid. Williams dies on the spot. The death haunts Hickok for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, Coe, in terrible pain, struggles for several days and dies. Two months later, Abilene's city council relieves Hickok of his duties, and he again returns to gambling. Hickok drifts across the West for the better part of a year. It's said he drinks too much and wins too little. It's here Buffalo Bill finds him. In September 1873, Buffalo Bill hires his old friend to perform in Cody's theatrical productions, Scouts of the Plains and Buffalo Bill, King of the Border Men. Here again is Chris Entz. How you doing, Bill? Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickok had known one another for a long time. He knew about the Wild West and convinced Hickok that we had to share this with a new generation of people who didn't know the Wild West as they did. And Cody invites him to be a part of this Wild West show. Let's just get this over with. I feel ridiculous. Hickok is well paid, but he hates appearing on stage and often stammers or forgets his lines. He's embarrassed by the histrionic melodrama and false heroics. He is a man of action, not words. He quits in March 1874. Back to the high plains goes Hickok. He spends much of his time in the railroad town of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And it's here in February 1876 that he marries Agnes Lake. Hickok honeymoons with Agnes in her hometown of Cincinnati, but he then heads west to the newest mining boomtown, Deadwood, in the Black Hills of Dakota Territory. Two years earlier, it was General Custer on a special expedition who discovered gold in the Black Hills. Hickok arrives in Deadwood in July 1876 and bumps into many of his old friends. Mining's not for him, though, and he spends most of his time gambling in saloons. I don't think you could have found any place more vile than Deadwood, South Dakota. 
It just was a place that um, had no law. I had people stealing from one another. You had people jumping one another. There are people that are being killed in a very violent way. We had all of this going on. And in this scene, you find Walbo Hickok. Your call. Shortly after noon on August 2nd, 1876, as America's celebrating its 100th anniversary, Hickok strolls into the number 10 saloon and joins a poker game in progress. Hickok asks Charles Rich, who is seated in a chair against the wall, to exchange seats with him. Rich only laughs and tells Wild Bill not to worry. Nobody is gunning for him. A few minutes later, Hickok repeats the request, and this time all the poker players, Carl Mann, William Massey, and Charles Rich, begin ribbing Hickok for his excessive caution. A drifter named Jack McCall enters the saloon. He draws no attention. He'd been in the number 10 only the night before, losing all the money he had on him in a card game to Hickok and others. Get some rest, take it easy. Here, have some breakfast on me. Here again is Marshall Trimble and Chris Entz. McCall's offended that Hickok has given him money to go and get something to eat and to calm down, but McCall isn't having any of it. Come in. While Bill Hickok and Jack McCall were gambling one night, he was a, a drifter, a ne'er-do-well, a loser. The guy's got a chip on his shoulder of some kind. McCall is just a punk looking for a way to start a fight with Walpo Hickok. And that's precisely what he does. Now McCall moves along the bar until he's behind Hickok. Wild Bill's attention is on Massey, a former steamboat captain on the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. Hickok is losing heavily to Massey, and Hickok remarks, the old duffer, he broke me on the hand. Those are Hickok's last words. There's the explosion of a revolver, and McCall yells, damn you, take that. Jack McCall is drunk. He's somebody who's looking for a way of fast fame. McCall comes in, and before Hickok knows it, takes his gun and shoots him in the back of the head. Hickok, face down, on the table, and is dead. After Hickok dies with aces and eights in his hand, that hand becomes a powerful symbol in Western literature and film that writers and filmmakers use to signal that death is at hand. 39-year-old Hickok outlives his close friend, George Custer, by less than two months. Custer had earlier fallen at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Captain Jack Crawford recalls of his friend Hickok. He was loyal in his friendship, generous to a fault, and invariably espoused the cause of the weaker against the stronger in a quarrel. Hickok is buried in Deadwood Cemetery with the inscription, Wild Bill, killed by the assassin Jack McCall. McCall is tried in Deadwood's Miners Court. A surprising number of character witnesses appear on behalf of McCall, saying he's, he's a quiet, peaceable man that Hickok had earlier threatened to kill. 
Hickok is called one of the premier gunfighters of the frontier, who is quick to shoot without giving an opponent a chance. The jury finds the defendant not guilty. McCall leaves for Cheyenne in Laramie City. He doesn't go far enough. The first trial is declared not binding because Deadwood is technically on the Sioux Reservation and the Deadwood's Miners Court and its proceedings are therefore extra-legal. McCall is arrested again and this time tried in Yankton, Dakota Territory. This time he's found guilty of murder and hanged. McCall becomes a footnote in history, while Bill becomes a legend. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler and also to Roger McGrath. And by the way, Roger, again, he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. And McGrath is a U.S. Marine and a former history professor at UCLA, and he's appeared all over the History Channel on their documentaries. And we're lucky enough to have him here as a contributor at Our American Stories. The story of Wild Bill Hickok, and what a story it was. He died on this day in history in 1876. And again, as always, all of our This Day in Histories, well, they're brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. I teach there two weeks a year, and my goodness, the students, it's just world class. Only going to West Point makes my heart beat as much. Uh, Beautiful kids, beautiful college, teaching all the things that are beautiful and that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, well, Hillsdale can come to you. Their free and terrific online courses are available at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And there are hours and hours of great material that the family can gather around and just give it a shot. That's hillsdale.edu. The story of Wild Bill Hickok, here on Our American Stories.